0: European Hearts Journal issue at a glance, volume 38, issue 29, focus issue on prevention by editor-in-chief Professor Thomas Lucia. Risk assessment and its management, from SCORE to statins, azetamib to PCSK9 inhibitors. Prevention has experienced enormous progress over the last decades, with the development of effective antihypertensive drugs, as outlined in the most recent ESC guidelines. More recently, with new drugs improving outcome, such as the proprotein convertase subtilizin slash kexin type 9, or PCSK9 inhibitors, for high risk, with markedly elevated low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, or LDL-C, levels, and the sodium slash glucose transport inhibitors for diabetes have been introduced. Thus, the consensus statement of the European Society of Cardiology slash European Atherosclerosis Society Task Force consensus statement on proprotein convertase subtilizin slash kexin type 9 inhibitors, practical guidance for use in patients at very high cardiovascular risk, is a timely document. Indeed, Monoclonal antibodies targeting PCSK9, a member of the serine protease family which regulates hepatic LDL receptors, are highly efficacious in lowering LDL-C. These treatments were recently approved in many European countries, albeit with quite some restriction due to the high costs. The patient groups prioritised for treatment are those with established atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease either clinical or unequivocal, on imaging, including patients with rapidly progressive disease, diabetes with target organ damage, or with a major risk factor, patients with familial hypercholesterolemia, without atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, but with substantially elevated LDL-C levels, as well as those with verified statin intolerance. Clinical algorithms focus on suggested pre-treatment requirements with statin and azetimib therapy and LDL-C thresholds before consideration of PCSK9 inhibition. These recommendations aim to identify very high-risk patients who are likely to approach LDL-C goal as a consequence of at least 50% lowering of LDL-C levels and thus likely derive a relevant reduction in absolute cardiovascular risk while also taking account of financial restraints in healthcare budgets. The consensus statement is put into perspective in an editorial by Mark S. Sabatine, from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, USA. For clinical decision-making in prevention, risk algorithms are crucial. Besides patient characteristics, and recently genetics, they often also consider geographics and or ethnicities to obtain optimal risk prediction. Indeed, particularly in Europe, there are considerable differences in cardiovascular risk from northern to southern countries. In a current opinion, limitations of the SCORE-guided European guidelines on cardiovascular disease prevention, Erling Folk and colleagues from Aarhus University in Denmark draw our attention to important limitations of the European SCORE model. This may explain why it is difficult to qualify for SCORE-guided primary prevention with statins in many European countries. Inherent limitations of the mortality based score model are discussed, including the score prevention paradox, i.e., if a drug can keep patients alive, there is no need to use it in primary prevention, the restricted age range, which is not applicable beyond 65 years, unreliable cross sectional recalibration approach, and too few fatal events to allow for reliable sex specific recalibration of score in target populations. The authors argue that with the conservative position of the 2016 ESC guidelines, score-based statin therapy is soon going to be phased out in European countries with low and or declining atherosclerotic risk. New approaches might therefore be needed to guide primary prevention with statins that do not only rely on traditional natural history studies, taking the burden of atherosclerotic events into account, and providing guidance on statin therapy also in the elderly population. Risk-based thresholds should be supported by risk-benefit and cost-effectiveness analyses. In spite of the previously mentioned novel drugs, statins remain the mainstay of cardiovascular prevention. However, even at high dosages, some patients do not reach target levels, in such situations, inhibitor of the Niemann-Pick transporter in the gut by azetamib is recommended. Although this concept has been tested successfully in Caucasian and Afro-American patients, not much is known about this approach in Japanese patients. In their article, LDL cholesterol targeting with pitavastatin plus azetamib, for patients with acute coronary syndrome and dyslipidemia, the HIJ-PROPER study, a prospective open-label randomised trial, Hiroshi Ogawa and colleagues from the Heart Institute of Japan in Tokyo report the results of their clinical trial. The HIJ-PROPER study is a prospective randomised open-label trial enrolling 1,734 patients at 19 hospitals in Japan to assess whether aggressive LDL-C lowering over 36 months with standard dose pitavostatin plus azetamib reduces cardiovascular events more than standard LDLC lowering with pitavostatin monotherapy in patients with acute coronary syndrome or ACS and dyslipidemia. Patients were randomized to intensive lowering with a target LDLC of lower than 1.8 millimoles per litre using pitavostatin plus azetamib or pitavostatin monotherapy. Mean follow-up LDL-C was 1.68 mMol per litre for pitavastatin plus azetamib and 2.19 mMol per litre for pitavastatin monotherapy. Of note, pitavastatin plus azetamib did not reduce primary endpoint in comparison with statin monotherapy. However, in ACS patients with higher cholesterol absorption represented by elevated pretreatment cytosterol was associated with significantly lower incidence of the primary endpoint in the statin plus azetamib group with a hazard ratio of 0.71. Thus, although in ACS patients, intensive lowering with standard pitavastatin plus azetamib showed no benefit over standard pitavastatin alone, statin plus azetamib may be particularly effective in patients with higher cholesterol absorption. These interesting findings are further discussed in a thoughtful editorial by Karen Humphreys from the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. Several vitamins have been considered in prevention with largely neutral results. Although vitamin C and E prove to be non effective, low 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels, for instance, in heart failure, are associated with a non-linear increase in mortality risk and might require substitution therapy. This question is addressed in a first article entitled Effect of Vitamin D on All-Cause Mortality in Heart Failure, Evita, a 3-year randomized clinical trial with 4,000 IU vitamin D daily, by Armin Zittermann and colleagues from the Heart Center North Rhine-Westphalia in Bad Oeynhausen, Germany. They examined whether oral vitamin D supplementation reduces mortality in advanced heart failure. 400 patients with 25 hydroxyvitamin D levels below 70 nanomoles per liter were randomized to receive 4,000 IU vitamin D daily or matching placebo for three years. The primary endpoint was all cause mortality, and secondary outcomes hospitalization resuscitation, mechanical circulatory support, high urgent listing for or undergoing heart transplantation, and hypercalcemia. Initial 25-hydroxyvitamin D levels were below 40 nanomoles per litre, remained around 40 nanomoles per litre in patients assigned to placebo, and plateaued around 100 nanomoles per litre in those assigned to vitamin D. Mortality was not different in patients receiving vitamin D or placebo with a hazard ratio of 1.09. However, the need for mechanical circulatory support implant was more common with 15.4% in patients assigned to vitamin D than with placebo, where it was 9.0%, while other secondary clinical endpoints were similar between groups. On the other hand, hypercalcemia was more common with 6.2%. Than with placebo, where it was 3.1%. Thus, daily vitamin D at a dose of 4000 IU did not reduce mortality in patients with advanced heart failure, but was associated with a greater need for mechanical circulatory support implants. Thus, the widespread enthusiasm on the use of 25-hydroxyvitamin D supplementation has to be cautioned, as there are safety concerns with little evidence of protection. These concerns are further discussed in an editorial by Dirk J. van Veldhuizen from the University Hospital Groningen in the Netherlands. Besides classical risk factors, environmental hazards such as noise and pollution have attracted increasing attention. Indeed, a number of studies have shown associations of cardiovascular events with such environmental hazards. Blood biochemistry may provide additional information on associations between road traffic noise, air pollution, and cardiovascular disease risk. Yutong Kai and colleagues from Imperial College London in the UK address this issue by analysing two large European cohorts, i.e. Hunt 3 and Lifelines, in their manuscript Long-Term Exposure to Road Traffic Noise – ambient air pollution, and cardiovascular risk factors in the hunt and lifelines cohorts. Pooling both cohorts, an interquartile range higher daytime noise of 5.1 decibels was associated with 1.1% higher high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, 0.7% higher triglycerides, and 0.5% higher high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, or HDLC only the association with HDLC was robust to adjustment for air pollution. An interquartile range higher particles with a diameter of 10 microns, i.e. PM10, of 2.0 micrograms per metre cubed, or NO2 of 7.4 micrograms per metre cubed, was associated with higher triglycerides of 1.9% and 2.2% respectively, independent of adjustment for noise. Additionally, for NO2, a significant association with high-sensitivity C-reactive protein of 1.9% was seen. In lifelines, an interquartile range higher noise of 4.2 dB and PM10 2.4 micrograms per metre cubed was associated with 0.2% and 0.6% higher fasting glucose respectively with both remaining robust to adjustment for air or noise pollution. Thus, it appears that long-term exposure to road traffic noise and ambient air pollution are associated with small but significant changes in cardiovascular risk factors which, at the population levels, may increase cardiometabolic risk. These novel findings are accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Thomas Muntzel from the Johannes Gutenberg Universität in Mainz, Germany. Most patients suffer from so-called essential or primary hypertension, i.e. elevated blood pressure with no known cause, such as renal disease or endocrine disorders. Accordingly, the former are treated with drugs rather than interventions or operations. It is well known that hypertension runs in families. Indeed, parental hypertension is known to predict high blood pressure in children. However, the extent to which risk for hypertension is conferred across multiple generations, notwithstanding the impact of environmental factors, is unclear. Timu Niranan and colleagues from the Boston University in Framingham, USA, evaluated in their study, Risk for Hypertension Crosses Generations in the Community, a multi-generational cohort study, the degree to which the risk of hypertension extends across multiple generations of individuals in the community. To that end, they studied three generations of Framingham Heart Study participants spanning five decades the first generation with 1,809 subjects, the second generation with 2,631 subjects, and the third generation with 3,608 individuals. To capture a more precise estimate of conferable risk, they defined early-onset hypertension below the age of 55 years as the primary exposure. In multinomial logistic regression models, The risk for hypertension in the third generation was conferred simultaneously by presence of early-onset hypertension in parents with an odds ratio of 2.10, as well as in grandparents with one of 1.33. Thus, early-onset hypertension in grandparents raises the risk for hypertension in grandchildren even after adjusting for early-onset hypertension in parents, and lifestyle factors, suggesting a substantial familial predisposition for hypertension. These impressive results are put into clinical context in an editorial by Stefano Massi from University College London in the UK. The editors hope that this issue of the European Hearts Journal will find the interest of its readers.